Welcome to the show. I'm glad you came. This is episode 35 of Say Hello to My Little Friend, the little podcast that could. I'm your host, Glenn Peoples, and this is the place to hear about philosophy, theology, biblical studies, politics, social issues, and pretty much anything else that takes my fancy. Today, I'm going to be saying a thing or two about Sam Harris, science and morality in that order. The moral argument for the existence of God, just to give you some of the background for what I'm going to say today, the moral argument argues that since moral facts exist, and since moral facts could not exist if God did not exist, it follows that God exists. The moral argument is actually bolstered by the fact that some non-religious people grant that the physical sciences cannot give us the answers to moral questions. They don't give us moral facts. Now, Sam Harris, one of the so-called new atheists, has a few things to say about this. Because he's someone who has gained a bit of traction of late, not among philosophers or, or, or philosophers of religion or theologians, but just the general population, or at least among those who are atheists, or at least among those who are atheists and have some none-too-pleasant things to say about religion, I thought it might be worth taking a look. I'm going to take a look at what he had to say at a TED conference recently. Now, TED, T-E-D, is an organization that promotes what it calls ideas worth spreading. Now, he doesn't speak on behalf of TED. TED achieves its goals largely by inviting interesting speakers on a whole range of subjects to come and talk. Uh, and so that's how this talk came to be. I'll quote Harris by playing brief snippets from his TED talk. The talk was called Human Values. Uh, interestingly enough, TED, T-E-D, stands for Technology, Entertainment and Design. Now, I'm not really sure which category Harris's talk falls under, but I have my suspicion. I'll leave that for you to decide. But for now, let's get into it. For Sam Harris, the issue on which he spoke and in which I'm speaking today is of special interest. The reason that anyone knows who Sam Harris is, is his fairly outspoken attacks on religious belief. He's the author of the book called The End of Faith and also another one called Letter to a Christian Nation, in which he makes his contempt for Christianity, but also religion in general, pretty overt. By arguing that morality has a purely scientific basis, that moral facts really are scientific facts after all, Harris seeks to undermine the moral argument for the existence of God. He recognizes the majority view that when it comes to questions of good and evil, right and wrong, science officially has no opinion. That's his summary. According to this widely held view, says Harris, science can, quote, tell us how to get what we value, but it can never tell us what we ought to value, end quote. Science then doesn't answer some of the most important questions out there. What is worth living for? What is worth dying for? What constitutes a good life? And questions of that nature. Now Harris says that he wants to show that this is an illusion. There's really no separation between science and moral values. It's an illusion and, he adds, quite a dangerous one at this point in human history. Now when he says this, up on the screen behind him is a projected image of a strand of DNA on one side and a statue of the Virgin Mary on the other. And the impression is clear. If we think that religion rather than science provides moral foundations, then we're setting the stage for real danger at this point in human history. So why is it that Harris says that this view is an illusion? Well, first let's ask, as Harris does, why do people believe that there is this separation between scientific facts and moral facts? Well, People believe this so-called illusion that Harris addresses because of what philosophers have called the fact-value distinction, or the is-ought distinction. Science deals with facts, but morality is about value judgments, and these aren't the same kind of thing. One of these is a statement about what is, and another 
is a statement about what ought to be the case, regardless of what presently is the case. For example, saying, if you cut off a man's head, then he will die, that's a purely factual claim. In fact, you could call it a scientific claim because you could analyze all the factors involved and say, yes, in fact, that would kill someone. So that is a scientific statement of fact. But now take a different kind of statement, saying, you shouldn't cut off a man's head because that will kill him. Now, do you see the difference? That's not just a description of fact, although it presupposes certain facts. It also contains a prescription about what we should or shouldn't do. Now, there are some facts that are important to us, like facts about which actions are good for people and what's bad for them, but they are no more than facts about what to do in order to get certain results. Facts about human well-being, for example, facts about uh, what people need to survive and thrive, these facts don't tell us whether or not we should give people what they need to survive and thrive. They only tell us that if we do certain things, then people will thrive and survive. Now, the argument is one of the major arguments that the famous Scotsman David Hume gave the world. In short, the argument can be summed up by saying that logic is conservative. In other words, when you put together a logical argument, you don't get anything brand new in the conclusion. Everything that's in the conclusion has to come from the premises or you've gone wrong. Uh, for example, premise one, if something is a fish, then it has scales. Incidentally, I don't know if that's true, but let's just assume for now that it is. Premise two, that thing is a fish. Premise three, or rather the conclusion, therefore that thing has scales. Okay, very simple logical argument. Notice that there's nothing new, no new elements in the conclusion that didn't somehow come from the premises. Fish and scales, they're both in the premises. Now, if the conclusion was, therefore, that thing can swim, then the argument would be logically invalid. Where does swimming come from? It's not in any of the premises. Now, we might be lazy and let it slide because we know that fish can swim. That's not the point. It's still a logically invalid argument. So Hume's argument was that if all of your premises are statements of fact, they all talk about what is, this is the case, this is the case, that is the case, and so on, then you can't get a moral conclusion. You can't, he said, take a bunch of is statements and then squeeze an ought statement out of it. For just this kind of reason, there's a widespread view that you can't take a bunch of scientific statements as premises and then get a moral conclusion, you know, a moral fact about how we ought to live. That's a leap from one type of relation, the relation of is, to a different relation, a relation of ought. So that's the basic reason that people hold this widespread view that Sam Harris doesn't. Harris rejects the claim that scientific facts and moral facts are different things. Reflecting on the claim, he says, not just that he's not convinced, but he says that it's, quote, clearly untrue. So people have, people have just missed this obvious thing. Now, here's how he puts it. It's often thought that there's no description of the way the world is that can tell us how the world ought to be. But I think this is quite clearly untrue. But values are a certain kind of fact. Okay, they, they are facts about the well-being of conscious creatures. Why is it that we don't have ethical obligations toward rocks? Why don't we feel compassion for rocks? It's because we don't think rocks can suffer. And if we're more concerned about our fellow primates than we are about insects, as indeed we are, it's because we think they're exposed to a greater range of potential happiness and suffering. Now, the, the crucial thing to notice here is that this is a factual claim. This is something we could be right or wrong about. I mean, if we've misconstrued the relationship between biological complexity and the possibilities of experience, well, then we could be wrong about the inner lives of insects. Okay, and there, there is no notion, no version of human morality and, and human values that I've ever come across that is not at some point reducible to a concern about conscious experience and its possible changes. Now, it's pretty clear just from that clip, but also from the context more broadly, that Mr. Harris thinks that by pointing this out, he is showing that actually moral facts really are scientific facts after all. But what's he actually doing here? Well, what he's actually doing, he's committing the informal fallacy of begging the question. It's a practice also referred to as circular reasoning. Circular reasoning, or begging the question, 
occurs when a person is arguing for a certain conclusion, but in order to reach that conclusion, they actually, whether they realize it or not, they already assume that their conclusion is true. Uh, some examples might be, communism is just because everyone deserves an equal share of the produce of society. Well, that description of what everyone deserves is basically equivalent to communism. So people only deserve an equal share if communism is just. So it's kind of like saying communism is just because communism is just. So you can't appeal to this claim to prove that communism is just. Now, I'm not saying that communists argue that way. I'm just saying if they did, they'd be you know, begging the question. Sam Harris commits this fallacy by essentially saying that moral values are scientific facts because they are scientific facts about what's good for beings and what causes pain. But actually, the very disagreement is about whether or not facts, such as facts about what causes pain, can be said to be moral in nature. Just declaring them moral in nature isn't an argument. It merely begs the question. It assumes what Harris is setting out to prove. But unfortunately, in making this argument, Harris does nothing to seriously address the is-ought distinction of David Hume or other philosophers. He doesn't even mention it. All he does is to announce that there's no distinction. Yes, it's true that pain is generated because of certain scientific facts, but this isn't a moral fact because it says nothing about whether or not it's right or morally acceptable to inflict such pain on people or other creatures. Unfortunately, this stipulation, a stipulation that Harris never actually argues for, serves as the basis for the rest of what follows in his talk, and Harris never, not even once, actually addresses Hume's argument or discusses the problem of getting ought from is. After making this assertion about moral facts, he moves on to say that we know of failed states in the world, places where things are just unsafe, places where people are likely to starve, they're likely to be murdered or attacked, or at least more likely than they are here, places where suffering is very common. And he's right, unfortunately, we, we do know of many such places. We wish we didn't, but we do. He then says that it's possible to move from such an awful state along the continuum of well-being to a much better state of affairs where these things are much less common. States of affairs whereby people have the freedom to run conferences, or like the one that he's speaking at, you know, freedom of speech and all that. Again, he's right. We can imagine ways in which societies can change for the better like this. They can move, to use his language, from one space to another. As Harris explains, he thinks that this provides us with good reasons for saying that uh, value judgments, moral claims, are just fact claims, scientific claims about the way the world is. Uh, he says, And we know, we know that there are right and wrong answers to how to move in this space. Would, would uh, adding cholera to the water be a good idea? Well, probably not. Okay, would it be a good idea for everyone to believe in the evil eye so that when bad things happen to them, they immediately blame their neighbors? Probably not. There, there, there are truths to be known about how human communities flourish, whether or not we understand these truths. And morality relates to these truths. So in talking about values, we are talking about facts. Now, I want to say this. Yes, there are facts about how a society changes from one kind into another. Facts about how crime could be reduced, corruption could be reduced, health of people in general could be improved, and so on and so forth. Now, we have to be careful how we use the word better here, but those changes are certainly better for people in the sense that it promotes their survival and happiness. And I think that's basically what he's talking about when he talks about their well-being. And Harris is right that it wouldn't be a, a good idea to poison the water supply, for example, but it's only not a good idea if what we're trying to achieve is better health for people. In other words, it's a good means to a certain end but none of this has anything to do with morality. These things are good at bringing about an end that we do in fact want. But it's just, it's equivocation to then leap to the conclusion that this makes them morally good things. When I say equivocation, I mean he's slipping and sliding between two different uses of the same word. The word good can be used in at least a couple of ways. We can talk about things being good for something or good at something on the one hand, um, I might be a good assassin. A loaded gun might be a good tool for carrying out an assassination. And if I want to assassinate somebody, then it would be a good 
idea to get hold of a loaded gun. But of course, everything I'm talking about isn't therefore morally good. I think just the opposite. I only mean that these things are good for the purpose of bringing about something that I want. Namely, an effective assassination. I don't really. Likewise, if we want people to be healthy, then it's not a good idea to poison the water supply, since poisoning the water supply isn't an effective means to the end of healthy people, quite the opposite. But the moral question hasn't even been touched, namely the question of whether or not we ought to act in the best interests of other people and other societies, whether we should promote their health, whether we have some duty to do so. So far, all the facts that Harris has discussed are just descriptions of what effects things have. And he hasn't said anything at all about whether we have duties, actual factual duties, to bring those effects about. And that's really what morality is about. Although he might not realize it, Harris actually implicitly admits that he's not talking about truth. And he's not really talking about moral facts as a truth-oriented fact claim. Let me briefly explain a distinction here. Realism, realism about morality, is the belief that there are some true moral claims. It's the belief that we can make at least some moral utterances that are factual and correct. Moral anti-realism can say a variety of things, but one of the things that moral anti-realism has to say is that moral claims, whatever good function they might serve, do something other than get at the facts. Now, this isn't just true of moral anti-realism, it's true of anti-realism more generally. It's the view that statements about something don't really tell us the truth about that something. Instead, those statements serve a non-truth-aimed function. For example, some might say that religious beliefs are very good things, but not because any religious belief is true. In fact, you might think they're all false. And in fact, that's not really what religious beliefs are, you might say. They're not really about truth. Religious beliefs, you might think, are about getting people to live in a certain way a way that promotes certain views about dignity, a way that gives people happiness and hope and so on. That's an anti-realist account of religious beliefs. But to go around propagating religious claims, religious beliefs, while describing those beliefs in this way, we're obviously not promoting the truth of religious claims. We're not talking about religious fact claims being correct. In fact, we're undermining the idea that these claims are correct by saying that the function of religious language is not to get at the truth at all. Okay, now that's a very rough and ready explanation of realism and anti-realism. Now I want to get you to reflect on one of the examples that Harris used when discussing unhelpful ways of getting from a bad society to a good one. He used the example of the evil eye, the belief that if something goes wrong for you, then that must mean that someone in your neighborhood, someone who has something against you, has put a curse on you. They've given you the evil eye. Now, Harris asks, if we want to get from a bad society to a good one, or if we want to get to a society where the demands of morality are better met, is it a good idea to believe in the evil eye? Wait a minute, a good idea to believe? Well, surely it's only a good idea to believe something if it's true, right? That's the way a realist would think about it. Aren't we talking about getting at the facts, those scientific facts that are the moral facts? Well, clearly we're not. Although Harris believes that this is what he's doing, what he's actually doing, what's really happening here, is that he's talking about the facts about things that we should do and believe, not because they reflect the truth, but because they will bring about the peace and happiness that we want. He's talking about a means to an end what we would do if we want a certain state of affairs to come about. But he's not explaining what it is that makes it moral to bring this state of affairs about. Okay, we're still fairly early on in the lecture. Things still have the potential to improve. The subject then moves on to brains, very briefly. Harris uh, says that if we want to talk about human well-being, then out of necessity we have to talk about the human brain. We know, he says, that our experience of the world is realized in the brain. Even for someone who believes in an afterlife, they still believe that in this life, your personality is the product of your brain. Actually, there are plenty of dualists who don't believe that, but I'm not going to broach that subject just now. Let's ground this, okay? If culture changes us, he says, it does so by changing our brain. And variations in cultural differences in what make people flourish can be understood in the context of what 
Harris called a maturing science of the mind. Neuroscience. Incidentally, his PhD was in neuroscience. So this is an, an area that he's particularly interested in. Moral facts then are facts identifiable by neuroscience, the science of the brain. What's a little troubling, though, is what comes next. Summing up what he has already said, Harris says this. So what I'm arguing is that values reduced to facts, to facts about the conscious experience of conscious beings, and we can therefore visualize a space of possible changes in the experience of these beings. And I, I think of this as a kind of moral landscape with peaks and valleys that, that correspond to differences in the well-being of conscious creatures, both personal and collective. That's his summary of the lecture so far. Now, notice the way that he prefaces this. He says that he is arguing that values are reducible to facts about the experience of conscious beings. But if you've listened to his talk up to this point, and I encourage you to listen to the whole thing, just, to, just so you know I'm not misrepresenting him. If you've listened to his talk up to this point, you could be forgiven for being somewhat bemused at that comment. Harris hasn't presented one single argument for the claim that values are reducible to facts about the experience of conscious beings. Now, he started out by claiming that this is what values are. Moral facts are facts like this, he says, and then he has observed that we're able to bring certain states of experience about, and therefore that we're able to get scientific answers to questions of value. But the one thing that he needs to be true in order for the rest of his discussion to make any sense or to be of any use at all, is the one thing that he hasn't offered a single argument for. Not even a bad argument. He's just offered nothing. He starts from the position that is in dispute, and in doing so, he claims that he is arguing for it. You can see why I consider his whole presentation to be a case of begging the question. Now, After saying this, and unfortunately revealing that he hasn't yet scratched the surface of the, the question, he moves on to a frank admission. He admits that we need to be realistic. Science, he says, isn't going to answer every single possible moral question that we might have. So if you want direct answers to questions like, should I have a second child? Should we bomb Iran's nuclear facilities and so forth? You're out of luck. But, he says, on many important questions of human flourishing, there are right and wrong answers. And just admitting this will change the way that we talk about morality. And it will change our expectations concerning human cooperation in the future. He goes on to an example. He uses the example of corporal punishment. Now, unfortunately, a certain amount of geographical and religious chauvinism enters the picture at this point. He's from the North, I'm assuming, based on some of his comments, the Northern States of America. He tells his audience that there are some states that allow corporal punishment in schools, where, and this is his description, rather obviously, where teachers take a wooden board and beat children until their skin is broken. This is the description that he offers, not me. And he shows his chuckling audience a map of the southern states highlighted, saying basically, well, it's no surprises which states allow this. And basically depicting southerners as ignorant religious redneck hicks. They do this for explicitly religious reasons, he says. The book of Proverbs says, spare not the rod, lest you spoil the child. Now he says there are facts that we can appeal to when addressing moral issues like this. Is it a good idea, he asks, to subject children to pain, violence and humiliation in order to encourage healthy emotional development and good behaviour? The audience laughs. Hilarious. Another question, of course, is whether it's a good idea to have double standards. That's the question I would ask. I mean, he never uses the issue of imprisonment, confinement, fining people and so on. He never uses pejorative language in those cases. For example, is it a good idea to steal from people or you know, to kidnap them? in order to teach them good behavior. Somehow examples like that never occur to him. But of course, he's now running into controversial territory, not because he's taking careless potshots at religion and not because he's caricaturing what people actually believe and do, although both of those things are clearly going on, but because he's now appealing to concepts of what healthy development is, what well-being is, and what sort of person we should want children to become. And he's talking about a world in which we simply don't agree on what these things are. Forget the issue of corporal punishment. That's a small fish compared to the whale of an issue that Harris is now referring to. Fortunately, unlike the earlier is-ought distinction, 
Harris recognizes that this issue really matters and it won't go away. Actually, the, ought is the is ought issue won't go away either, but he still ignores that. But he does turn to this issue now, fortunately. He also starts to repeat the term objective morality, which reassures me that I really am on the same page and I am understanding what he talks about when he refers to moral values. He thinks that there are objective moral truths. So what of this question of well-being? Good health, says Harris, is a concept that has changed over time. Once, a human's average life expectancy was in the 30s. Now, in some places, it's 80. Maybe in the future, it'll be in the hundreds. But this doesn't make it a vacuous concept because we can still clearly see the difference between, say, a living person and a dead one. Well, think of food. Maybe one food isn't the best and there are many that could count as good food, but still, he says, we can distinguish between food and poison. He's right. He's right when it comes to these examples. The fact that things exist on a continuum and it's not always clear where things are on that continuum doesn't mean that we can't evaluate and compare things. But here is where Harris starts combining and confusing issues. The issue of corporal punishment prompted him to address the underlying issue of conceptions of human well-being. I was glad he went there. I, th I thought he was going to discuss that more fully. This prompted him to say that while things come in degrees, that doesn't mean that there are no facts of the matter. But now he moves on in another direction altogether and says that all this proves that moral objectivity doesn't mean that there are not exceptions to moral rules. So the fact that lying is wrong as a rule doesn't mean that it's always and everywhere wrong to lie. Well, that's true. But wait, I wanted an answer to the question about human well-being, but, well, it was a complex issue, I guess. He didn't want to go there, so he shouldn't have said that he was going to go there. He never returns to the question. It just gets left lying behind. Yet it's very important. The question of moral flourishing, the question of well-being, what a person is supposed to be like when they are functioning well, those are actually rather contentious issues. But maybe some other time. Instead, he moves on again, not even unpacking the territory that he just ventured into, and he starts condemning moral relativism. He condemns those who observe the way that women are treated in Islamic countries, forced to wear the burqa, punished severely for crimes of etiquette, and people who say, well, who are we to tell them how to live? You know, the idea of who are we to impose our values on them? Who are we to condemn what they do? Well, Harris has an answer to that. Okay, well, who are we not to say this? Who are we to pretend that we know so little about human well-being that we have to be non-judgmental about a practice like this? I'm not talking about voluntary wearing of a veil. I mean, women should be able to wear whatever they want, as far as I'm concerned. But what does voluntary mean in a community where when a girl gets raped, her father's first impulse, rather often, is to murder her out of shame? Now, take that scenario and then ask, how could that, Harris says, represent the peak of human flourishing? But Actually, Harris really isn't addressing the question here. Remember the example of corporal punishment? That raised the question of well-being and flourishing, a question over which people disagree. Now, it's true that there are examples that many of us will agree are not examples of human well-being and flourishing. But it's worthless to point out cases like this, because the specter that Harris raised is really one of how we evaluate someone's state of well-being and flourishing. For example, compare a person who is religiously observant and who is a Christian. This person wants to follow Jesus Christ and live as the Bible calls him to live because in doing so he believes that he is living the way that people were made to live. And so he is flourishing as a person to be a good specimen of humanity. This is the correct way to live according to him. Now Harris, as a matter of fact, takes issue with this way of living because he doesn't think that this is what a, a good specimen of humanity does. And indeed, there's no objective purpose for which humanity was created. This is the issue he has raised. He might not have meant to raise it, but he raised it. And yet he's really distracting us from that issue by throwing out examples of behavior that pretty much all of us think are really bad and which don't contribute to human flourishing. But just as the existence of degrees of things doesn't negate the existence of objective facts, neither do the existence of obvious examples of moral facts show us that really we share moral agreement in general. Harris has not shown us that we have a shared understanding of human flourishing at all. He's merely indicated that there are some cases that we can agree are not examples of human flourishing. Now this is to say nothing of the fact that the crux of his argument 
has been missed, namely that moral fact, just are facts about human well-being. That was never addressed. So really, Harris shouldn't have even got this far in the discussion. He should have been stopped on his tracks already. Well, next, and I think more or less revealing why he's doing what he does in presenting his message, Harris moves on to speak more directly about religious movements. He says it's somewhat ironic that the only people who seem to generally agree with me and who think that there are right and wrong answers to moral questions are religious demagogues of one form or another. And of course, they think they have right answers to moral questions because they got these answers from a voice in a whirlwind. Okay, not because they made an intelligent analysis of the causes and condition of, of, of human and animal well-being. And in fact, the, the, the endurance of religion as a, as a lens through which most people view moral questions has separated most moral talk from real questions of human and animal suffering. This is why we spend our time talking about things like gay marriage and not about genocide or nuclear proliferation or poverty or any other hugely consequential issue. Wow. Seriously, wow. Look, I need to be careful how I say this because I don't want to commit the ad hominem fallacy. The ad hominem fallacy is where you attack some non-relevant feature of the person making the argument and then you dismiss the argument because of that feature, like... Well, you can't believe what he's saying. He's a political conservative. Or, yeah, well, I'd expect you to say that you're a Christian. I'm not going to say that you should reject Sam Harris's claims because he lacks a graduate education in ethics. You should accept or reject his claims depending on how they stand up to scrutiny, not because of his credentials. But after hearing these comments, I had to check out his credentials because this is just incredible. He's got a PhD in neuroscience and a Bachelor of Arts in philosophy. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying, and I would never say, that without a higher degree in philosophy or in theology specializing in ethics or philosophy of religion, you can't competently discuss these subjects. You can, provided you know your stuff. However, if you have done such study, you will be shaking your head in absolute disbelief at what you've just heard. Let me try to separate out and briefly explain these significant errors both historical and philosophical errors in what Harris has just said. First, <clears throat> Harris suggests that in a religious context, moral decision-making is a piece of cake because you can just get the answers from a whirlwind, or a voice in a whirlwind. The whirlwind reference is kind of left field, but he could have just as easily said from a book, the Bible, or from the voice of God, or, or from what have you. The claim that he's making is just that there's no careful process of intellectual weighing, no ethical analysis, nothing, just an answer straight from God about what to do. This is an utterly absurd caricature, one that suggests that Sam Harris has never opened a book on Christian ethics, moral theology, call it what you will. I don't know of a single author in that field who says anything like what Harris suggests, and for good reason. Take a biblical principle like the one found in, say, Romans chapter 13, verse 10, which says, Love does no harm to one's neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Okay, so being properly loving in a biblical sense means not harming our neighbor. Simple, right? So all we have to do is not harm our neighbor. We don't need to think through this or investigate the facts. Just don't harm your neighbor. Well, is it really that simple, though? Well, of course it's not. Because once we know the principle that we're not supposed to harm people, that's the principle we're supposed to live by, then we need to do just the kind of analysis that Harris foolishly implies religious ethics doesn't need. We need to then ask, well, what constitutes harm? How can we go about avoiding harm? What kind of things would cause harm? In fact, if we're going to think that religious moral claim all the way through to the end, one of the things we've got to do is guess what? We've got to ask about brains and the relationship between you know, the brain structure and the sensations of pain and the experiences and so forth, just like Harris does. So this throwaway comment about religious simpletons and their simple ethics might have some rhetorical punch and it might sort of reinforce the kind of stereotypes that he hopes his audience has, but it was just careless and it was revealing of a real lack of depth in his analysis. Secondly, Harris suggests that because of this simplistic approach to ethics that religious people allegedly have, they get all caught up on issues like gay marriage and not big issues like genocide, nuclear weapons and poverty. Here's my question, what planet is Sam Harris on? I mean, seriously, Christians haven't said much about poverty. Christians haven't said much about genocide and human suffering. 
either Harris has intentionally avoided looking at re what religious people have said about these things, or he's just a liar. It's difficult to know how to begin making reading recommendations to correct this bizarre misrepresentation. Try reading anything written by Christians on social justice. Just anything will do. Over the years, Christians have had plenty of things to say about and have actually at times been pioneer thinkers about specific ethical issues and, and major concepts in ethics. Think of poverty, the justice of warfare, criminal punishment, genetic engineering, abortion and euthanasia, the philosophical distinction between killing and letting die, racial segregation, slavery, drug and alcohol related issues, the treatment of indigenous peoples, and the list just goes on and on and on. Look, listening to a recording like this of Harris can be pretty telling about who he is directing his message at. It's intended for anti-religious people who share all of his ignorant prejudices. Earlier, when making snide comments about southern states and corporal punishment, there were jeers and snickers coming from the audience. But at this point in the lecture, when he makes his ridiculous comments about religious philosophers and ethicists, there wasn't so much as a murmur from the audience when he made this catastrophically false claim about religious ethics. Now, you stand before an audience that knows a thing or two on the subject and isn't going to give you a free pass, and you just try to get away with claims like this. You'll be booed, heckled, or just laughed off the stage, or the audience will walk out. The reason, I think, that Harris has this all out of proportion is that he isn't really bothered by what a lot of Christians have said about social justice or suffering or nuclear warfare because he probably agrees with the most of it, so he just kind of ignores it. The reason that same-sex issue looms so artificially large for him is that he disagrees with what a lot of Christians think about it. His problem isn't that Christians go on about it so much more than other things, because they don't. His problem is that they express their views on it at all, and he thinks they're wrong. This sweeping attempt to dismiss religious ethics as simplistic and slowing us down and getting to the real important issues in ethics does nothing to instill patience in Harris's Christian audience, small though it probably is. It gives the impression, or at least it gives me the impression, that it's probably a waste of time even trying to explain things to him in response because his analysis is so shallow, so hasty, so misguided, as he rushes to negative conclusions about religious ethics, that it, he gives the impression that he's just not one who listens. He doesn't care about accuracy. It's just an intellectual turnoff. But apart from the string of false and pejorative comments, his initial comment was correct. Yes, religious people in general, and it's probably best if I only speak for those who share my perspective, yes, Christians do agree with Harris that moral facts exist. We just claim that from a purely naturalistic point of view, they couldn't exist. But Harris then says that religious folk are at least correct that objective moral truths are out there. He uses the example of the Dalai Lama and the example of Ted Bundy, the serial rapist and murderer. He says that if a Western intellectual the kind that he tends not to agree with about morality and science, if a Western intellectual comes along and says that there are no moral facts, he ends up basically saying that there's really no truthful moral difference between Gandhi and Bundy. There's, there's nothing for these two people to really be right or wrong about, morally speaking. Which, I think, just as an aside, does seem pretty crazy to most people, myself included. But notice, Harris observes, that we don't do this when it comes to science. When someone makes a fact claim in science and provides reasons for thinking that way, you don't get to just stand up at a physics conference and say, well, I say that string theory is bogus because it just doesn't resonate with me and it's not how I choose to view the universe. I'm not a fan. String theory is the example he uses. And no one would take that seriously because if you reason that way about physics, then you're not an expert. No expert would say those things. You have no expertise in dealing with the facts over which string theorists obsess. In short, not every opinion counts. It might sound nice to say otherwise, but it's just naive. We don't think that way about science, so why should we do it, says Harris, when it comes to morality. Now right here, Harris leaves himself open to a simple answer. Now it's not an answer that I agree with, but it's likewise not an answer that he has presented a response to. If his question is why some people don't treat moral facts as having a truthful answer, like a scientific fact, then he might want people to say, hey, yeah, good point, we should treat them both the same way. But he has left the door open for someone to reply to him by saying, well, Mr. Harris, 
I don't evaluate moral perspectives in the same way that I evaluate scientific perspectives because there are facts that science can observe, but there are no moral facts. Therefore, to presume that to presume to evaluate moral claims like scientific claims is just like a search for a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, for there are no moral facts or pots of gold at all. Now, Harris isn't really prepared to answer this. He won't agree with it, but he hasn't given any reasons so far, so far for rejecting this response. All he can say is, no, no, but there are such facts, facts about creatures' ability to suffer or to flourish. And then the respondent will reply by saying, but those aren't facts about what we ought to do. Those are merely facts about biology. Do you see? Let me be very clear. I agree that we, or at least hopefully most of us, intuitively see that it, it really is nonsense to say that there's no objective moral difference between the life of Gandhi and the life of Ted Bundy. Of course there is. But the mere fact that we can tell that there's a factual moral difference doesn't mean that the facts must therefore be physical, much less biological facts. doesn't mean they have to be scientific facts. You see, Harris is sliding between, well, they're factual claims, therefore there must be scientific claims. No, not so. This is only true if you make the error of assuming that all facts are scientific facts, that is, facts capable of being investigated by the physical sciences. But whether you're a theist or an atheist, you've got to know that that's a false assumption. Some facts are facts of law and are investigated by legal scholarship. Some facts are facts of logic, and we investigate these by deductive reason. Likewise, some facts, assuming that Harris is right that there are such facts, as I think there are, some facts are moral facts. And these are not facts about states of affairs that science can investigate. Instead, they are facts about which such states of affairs we should be trying to bring about. Harris draws his presentation to a close by simply perpetuating what I take to be a category confusion. Scientific, factual descriptions of states of affairs on the one hand, and then value judgments about which states of affairs we ought to bring about on the other. Harris linguistically bundles these two things together when in fact they aren't the same thing at all. Here's his closing statement. Okay, we live in a, in, a, in a world in which the boundaries between nations mean less and less and they will one day mean nothing. We live in a world filled with destructive technology and this technology cannot be uninvented. It, it will always be easier to break things than to fix them. Okay, it seems to me therefore patently obvious that we can no more respect and tolerate vast differences in, in notions of human well-being, then, then we can respect or tolerate vast differences in the notions about how disease spreads or in the, in the safety standards of buildings and airplanes. We simply must converge on the answers we give to the most important questions in human life. And to do that, we have to admit that these questions have answers. Thank you very much. Notice that when it comes to his closing statement, the moral language is, has pretty much disappeared. He's no longer overtly speaking in terms of moral facts. He has instead referred to different beliefs about human well-being. He closes by saying that we need to acknowledge that facts about human well-being exist. But wait, back the truck up just a second. The Western intellectuals that he has explicitly denounced, those people who say that scientific facts and moral facts are different kinds of facts, those people already agree with Harris that there are facts about human well-being. And so there are factual answers about how to promote human well-being. They already say this. If all that Harris is trying to show to such people is that such facts exist, then he's wasting his breath. No, his goal, his goal that he announced at the beginning was much more than this. There's no point shifting the goalpost now. His goal, according to him, was to show that moral facts are scientific facts, not just that there are facts about human well-being. The people that he says disagree with him accept that there are facts about what promotes human well-being. What they deny is that there are also scientific facts about what state of affairs we have a factual moral duty to bring about and under what circumstances. Harris has not even begun to, the, to rise to this challenge. In giving... What I know is already a very negative assessment of Harris's position. I don't want to give the impression that I would respond this way to all arguments suggesting a connection between science and morality, or that I would treat 
um, a thinker or a writer or a speaker this way just because he's an atheist. That's not the issue. Please don't think that. This issue is the nature of that connection, the connection between science and morality. Harris has failed terribly to provide reasons to think that there are moral facts and that they are scientific facts. I think that was merely an unsuccessful attempt to replace the moral argument for theism with a scientific account, an attempt that is no more than part of a wider effort to undermine the importance of religious belief. But some philosophers and scholars who are just as unbelieving about God as Harris and who really do have expertise in the area of ethics and philosophy have taken a very different approach, and I think an approach that is much more defensible. They do give scientific accounts of morality, but not an account of moral facts. Their account, unlike the arguments that Harris tries to use, recognize the important difference between claims that are descriptions of biological and sociological states of affairs on the one hand, and normative claims on the other, claims about the way things ought to be. Instead of an account of moral facts, what many scholars set about doing is offering an account of the phenomena of moral sentiments or moral beliefs. They seek to explain why we hold moral beliefs. They try to give an account of the enterprise of morality itself rather than the truth of moral claims. Randolph Nice, now I don't know if I'm saying that name correctly, it's spelled N-E-S-S-E, Nice or Nessie or Ness, I've never heard it said out loud, but Randolph frankly admitted, and I quote, the discovery that tendencies to altruism are shaped by benefits to genes is one of the most disturbing in the history of science. When I first grasped it, I slept badly for many nights trying to find some alternative that did not so roughly challenge my sense of good and evil, end quote. But it was his view nonetheless, regarding it as a factual discovery. Michael Roos, the famous philosopher of science and commenter on Darwinism, something he believes in, by the way, expresses more or less the same view, but he states it more memorably when he says, and I quote, Morality is a biological adaptation, no less than our hands and feet and teeth. I appreciate that when someone says, love thy neighbor as thyself, they think they are referring above and beyond themselves. Nevertheless, such reference is truly without foundation. Morality is just an aid to survival and reproduction and has no being beyond or without this. Morality is an ephemeral product of the evolutionary process, just as are other adaptations, and any deeper meaning is illusory. Now, Michael Roos finds himself not personally liking the lack of moral facts that he discusses, but he's an honest man. On the one hand, he wants to say, the man who says that it is morally acceptable to rape little children is just as mistaken as the man who says that 2 plus 2 equals 5. Nevertheless, his sense of integrity and consistency compel him to admit that we all feel this way only because we share a, quote, common evolutionary heritage, end quote. The reason that we feel this way about certain acts is not that they actually violate any fact-based standards of right or wrong, but because we have become genetically predisposed to think that way, inasmuch as this adaptation has been good for the survival of the human race. Richard Dawkins said essentially the same thing, or things like this, in his 1976 work, The Selfish Gene, where he described cooperation among creatures grounded in the self-interest of passing on one's DNA. Now, I refer to the likes of Ness, Ruse and Dawkins, not because I agree with them. In fact, I think they're wrong about whether or not there really are moral facts. But I refer to them to point to examples of how one can seriously argue from science to morality, that is, how to explain some of our moral beliefs and behavior. Now, you might offer a very different explanation for why we live according to what we take to be moral values. But as long as you appreciate that this is what you're doing, then you're not going to make the error of thinking that moral facts are themselves scientific facts. But this doesn't even get close to what Harris wants to do. He wants to say that scientific facts are moral facts. He simply never argues that this is the case. He just sidesteps the monstrous philosophical problems with the assumptions that he has, and he proceeds as though they were true. As an atheist, not me, him, as an atheist, the gap between moral facts and scientific facts should make perfect sense to Harris. There are things that are good for us as far as our survival and happiness are concerned, but these things are only known in retrospect. Certain changes took place in our development as a species, 
and these happily turned out to be beneficial. Certain behavioral traits developed, and some of these traits had the good luck to be useful for survival and flourishing, so they were kept in our gene pool. But while there are things that our features, our traits, and even we ourselves are good at or good for, and while there are things that are good for us, there is nothing that we were meant for. There's nothing, nothing at all that can, in fact, or even in principle, be what we were meant to do. There are, from Harris's atheistic perspective, absolutely no facts about what we were supposed to do. This is the insight that other philosophers and scientists, unbelieving men like Ruse or like others like J.L. Mackey or Friedrich Nietzsche and others have gained, but Harris hasn't really grasped it. He has gained the support of an extremely receptive and, dare I say, rather uncritical audience who agree with him, as I do as well, that human flourishing is a good thing and that we ought to promote it, but he hasn't even begun to give good reasons to think that science shows us that this is what we ought to do to promote these things. Harris has written a book on the subject, soon to be released, and it's called The Moral Landscape. I'll provide a link to that book so that if you want, you can pre-order it from my favorite bookstore in the world, The Book Depository. I'm going to get hold of a copy. If his arguments or lack of arguments in the book are similar to those in his talk, then I do have a pretty good idea of what I'll make of it, but I hope it'll be better. I'm going to give it a read. I think the subject is an immensely important one. That's why I'm going to read it. And when people reject the moral argument, the argument that objective purpose and moral duty in the world can only exist if God exists, and if they attempt and fail to provide an alternative grounding of objective moral facts, then I think those failures need to be documented. We need to be continually reminding people of the failure of atheism to account for the possibility of moral facts. And I think it's fair to say of the significant philosophical shortcomings in the new atheism as a whole. We need to basically remind and show the world, look, these people do not know what they are talking about. There's value in going through the arguments used by this movement and showing one by one that they just don't get it. With all due respect, Sam Harris presents us with an opportunity to do just that. And on that note, my dear friends, we draw to a close, the close of episode number 35. You know, there have now been more episodes of Say Hello to My Little Friend than I have had birthdays. So we've passed something of a milestone. I don't know what the next episode will be about. Hopefully it'll be a riveting one. I'll get to work thinking about that. In the meantime, you enjoy yourselves and do come back for next time. Until then, this is Glenn Peebles signing off from another episode of... Say hello to my little friend!